Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the your the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. So you mentioned likability and charisma as skills. Obviously, when you're already a big name and people are paying to see you, they kind of come in liking you. But in the beginning, did you find that this was like the hardest part? You know, I'm trying to make people happy. So through my entire life, you know, it's not hard to be likable when you want people to laugh and be happy. And when that's all you think about and that's something that you really devote yourself to and you work as hard as I've worked on it, the charisma sort of comes more quickly than the actual craft of joke writing. And so so when you start, first started doing stand-up, did you think you had to play the game of premise punchline like everyone else or did you go right into I think one of my strengths is I actually don't take myself seriously. So I really, for reals, do not take any of this seriously. I never took it seriously that I was going to figure out how to do stand-up. I just knew, you know, I learned this from my father. If you work harder than anyone around you, then you will be successful. And so I just figured you got to work, and I'll figure it out as I work. So you were going up on it's stage. It's so insane to me that people don't understand that. I don't, and it's not necessarily their fault. I think a lot of people... More and more, Kate and I have this big thing right now. <laughs> One of the many philosophical arguments in our household is that she she sometimes says, well, I wouldn't act like that if I was them. And I'm like, 
yeah, you would. He's like, no, I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't be rude like that. And I go, yes, you would. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, if you were them, if you were actually that person with their background, their upbringing, the pros and cons that came with their life, the resources that were afforded to them and weren't, the obstacles and the challenges and the tragedy they faced, you would act exactly the way that they are acting. And so uh, I understand that some people have a tough time working hard. Like, I get it. Some people need to do that. That's easier or better for them, or that's just the way their life is going to go. But it's insane to me that people don't understand that if you work harder than everybody else, you will be. I am a clear example of mediocre talent, incredible work ethic, success. When you were at Stand Up New York last, you were doing jokes that seemed like you had read the book Sapiens. Oh yeah, you asked about that, or at least yeah. 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 So I asked through Steve. Um, so yeah, are we on the air? No. Not oh yeah. Oh yeah. wow, really? So you just go right into it. So we're on the air, and hopefully this hallow, this hallowed, uh, this hallowed this establishment iconic. with this hollow sound. In an empty room. This is reflective of kind of what it feels like for me to do stand-up in general. Um, no, I, um, yeah, I was here and I have read part of the book Sapiens and I'm reading his book uh, Homo Deus. Um, but Sapiens relates to some of the work that I'm doing with time theory. So his- well, What do you mean some of the work you're doing with time theory? Well, so I'm a stand-up comedian uh, masquerading as uh, someone who also knows a slight amount about philosophy. And so right now, the things that I'm working on in stand-up are talking about suicide, talking about uh, the human condition in a post-religious, post-meaning society, trying to spin nihilism as a more positive thing by uh, explaining that absurdism is a type of nihilism, but a positive one. And then time theory is another thing that I'm really focused on because that is just something that no one since Aquinas has really been able to like talk about. So that requires an immense, that'll probably take decades of time. That and the release of the death anxiety are the two, those will take probably 20 or 30 years. What do you mean in terms of like formulating your... Being able to make a message that is both funny and... Uh, you know, makes sense and changes the way that people, shifts the cultural paradigm in terms of how people think about time and death. I feel like you were playing with it in, and we'll we'll get into the intro in a second because this, this is fascinating. I thought you were playing with it. I wish I had his hair. I know that this is a podcast. <laughs> I wish I had But I wish, I, I, wish beard. I wish, I wish, I wish. Okay, keep going. Okay, I do. In ridiculous, ridiculous. You look mm -hmm. like a, you're a genius. You know what I mean? He's got to look like people look at him and they're like, I bet he is involved in academia and very smart. Yes. I, this look has paid off for me. I like that. You just walk in, I just walk into a room and people, people wanna, are like, what's your doctorate in? You right, know what I mean? Exactly. And I was thrown out of graduate school. So is that true? It is true. What were you yeah. studying? Computer science. Really? Yeah, yeah. And then why were you thrown out of there? We don't even <laughs> need to talk about this it. This is my podcast. Let's talk. Right. Yeah. Right, so I was thrown out of there because I was trying to write the great American novel at the same time. Really? Yeah. And that requires and that a work. lot of marijuana. You know? I mean, that's not going to not take any marijuana. Uh, get closer to the mic. All right, Jay. Um, I feel in, in your HBO comedy special, you were playing with the time theory stuff. You did the 
you know, if you traveled back 2,000 years. Yeah, morality you... being relative. That's another thing. But people don't really like to hear about that, except now I've figured out that if I present some absolutes, then that makes people more comfortable. So if I explain that love is an absolute because we all absolutely know when we're in love, you know, you absolutely know that you're in love with somebody, you know that that's a real feeling and that beauty, both inward and outward beauty is an absolute. So I talk about how no one doesn't like a sunset. That would be really weird to look at a sunset and be like, oh, isn't that beautiful? And the person next to you is like, too much purple for me. You know, that, that never happens. So if I can present those things, then talking about, uh, moral relativity is okay. I mean, I remember I asked some teacher at some point about, you know, is morality relative? Could that be? And they were like, well, what, I mean, what's the point of talking about that? I mean, what, you know, then it, what does anything matter? And I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. I'm like, wear it on your sleeve that you don't know what the fuck is going on. But that's a, that's a difficult thing because especially right now, people, you know, they're, they're really clinging to some sort of something they want some sort of absolute and so that that's kind of tough so i i'm i'm working on that but what else is interesting is i realized that you know we come from a time where stand-up has to be different so the new hour has to be completely new because comedy central wants to be the only one that has this material that isn't on hbo and what i realized is that if you're crafting an hour and it's great and thematically there's some stuff that carries on into your work continuously that so my next hour which is called the new nonsense is going to have some of the stuff from meticulously ridiculous it'll just be more refined and there'll be connectivity between that and other things that i've worked on since then because i think you know i'm dealing with themes that kind of aren't going to go away and it's going to take me for a while to be able to talk about them because i'm trying to leapfrog all this fucking politics you know uh I like just all the stuff that most people are concerned about. I'm trying to like go on past that to try and talk about real things. So it doesn't make sense for me. Not that the other things aren't real, but it doesn't make sense to me to be like black people talk a lot in the movie theater. And you know why that's a stereotype? Because a lot of times I've been to the movie theater and black people talk in the movie theater or um, Donald Trump has a small penis and here's why, although that is something that I talk about in my standup now and, and I talk about how we should feel sorry for him. Those things aren't that interesting to me. Stereotypes, race, culture, most of those things are ephemeral. So they change from epoch to epoch, whereas there are certain questions and themes that have remained in human history as sort of quandaries that are unanswered since the dawn of Western civilization, which started not with Socrates, but with Epicurus. That fucking pug face piece of shit. So wait, how do you, why do you, or how do you take these? She knows what I'm talking about. She's your biggest fan. I'm excited. How do you, how do you She's take my these tallest, concepts man. and turn them into a joke? Mm. Turn them into stand-up? As of What's yet, I have not been able to, but I no, have but made a lot of people unhappy about how much they spent on a show. Um, no, I mean, you know, the idea is to figure out what's funny about these things and then try and, um, you know, attach, like for instance, so I have a very, 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 in my opinion, a very good joke about death. And so I say, uh, is there anything better than sleep? And a lot of people say sex. And I'm like, yeah, but what do you do right after sex? And they're like, you sleep. And some guys are like, I have sex again. And I'm like, yeah, but then what do you do after that? And some people are even like, I have sex. And I'm like, no, you don't. 
even after three times, the guy's like, please stop, you know? And I say, there's only one thing better than sleep, and that's when you're just about to go to sleep, just about to go to sleep, and you're like, oh my God, I don't have to work tomorrow. Isn't that the greatest feeling in the world? That's what death is. And so when I say that to an audience, they're like, wait, what? And, but that's an important thing. It's like death is the greatest, longest sleep without nightmares where you don't have to sleep or you don't have to work the next day. Well, I'm doing it really well on the podcast. And, um, and then that relates to some of the material that I have about nightmares, which I talk about nightmares and it's not, and dreaming, and that's not the same jokes as in Meticulously Ridiculous, but it's thematically still the same thing. Pete Holmes and I talk about this a lot, that like, you, some themes will never leave our stand-up. They just have to be expressed in different jokes. Right, but I would say- But then, oh, sorry. And when I was, just to finish that, sorry to interrupt you, but it's, you know, and then, but I'm talking about right now, the idea of like, if everything is meaningless, then that's the greatest gift because if nothing means anything, then anything can mean everything. And so you transcend being a human being into sort of being your own God by deciding the meaning of your own life but I haven't figured out how the fuck to make that funny. Okay, so but that's that gonna related, take a while. Would you say, like, let's take Meticulous as an example. You have a lot of absurdist jokes. Isn't it funny that I named it Meticulously Ridiculous because it's difficult to say. So if people like it, they have to be like, hey, I love your Meticulous, uh, you're good on the HBO show, you know? So you have a lot of absurdist jokes there. Is that where you kind of translate the sort of meaninglessness of everything? Like the whole... I don't even know the gobble, the gleep, your friend gleep, gleep who suicide. Yeah, the yeah. gobble snarf. snarfing. Which is a terrible, that's a tragedy that I don't love to talk about or bring up. But yeah, I mean, that's- I thought it was hilarious. Things, Yeah, but it's not funny that he died. I mean, Why you not? know, well, because he choked on his own. <laughs> he's, he's, you know, I mean, uh, <clears throat> it's just not funny to me. But, but it's uh, absurdist. It is absurdist. And I think a lot of that is sort of an expression of the impasse that I'm at right now that I think is kind of boring and interesting is that Steve Martin sort of was absurdist and he was saying something with that absurdism, but I'm finding that people really need you to talk about yourself and talk about how you feel. It has to be autobiographical. It needs to be really need to strip it down on stage. And for me, that's not always what I want to do because I don't love talking about myself. But I realized that social satire mixed with circus equals an opportunity in an arena or a safe environment to talk about philosophy. So that's that's what I'm working on right now. And so the absurdism is actually sort of morphed into circus now because I am sort of a trained clown and I know a lot about circus. And I'm a juggler and a unicyclist and a very bad magician and a horrible ventriloquist. Don't even ask me to, don't. I won't even do it. Keep that mouth shut and don't throw your voice over here. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, so I, I'm trying to find that balance and I think eventually all of my stand-up will be a mix of circus and philosophy. So you actually- Primarily went, clown, obviously. I'm not a fucking you went to like trapeze a, artist. Don't ask me to jump on some bar swing from goddamn you went to like a clown school, right? Or a circus school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we did do research. I did. Uh, Friche Theater Urbane in Paris, France. And my wife has a lot of, I just said I wouldn't call her it, but Kate has a lot of uh, um, French friends. And I'm very racist against French people. I don't like the French. I uh, think that French is, there's two races I don't like, Frenches and whites. <laughs> I don't care for whites. 
And I call them that to their face. I'll say, you're one of those whites. I used to like this Applebee's until all the whites started coming here. This used to be a good Long John Silver's until the whites showed up. <laughs> Fucking whites and they're on time, quiet during the movie. Fuck you, all right? But I, uh, um, so I, I don't particularly like the French, but uh, Kate, uh, Kate loves these French people. So I'm constantly around French people. And uh, and they are excellent clowns and mimes and you know I mean there's a re and they love physical comedy so um, obviously I'm joking about uh, being racist against the French I am racist against whites but um, you know I, I I think so I I went to French Theater Urbain in Paris France and there was a teacher this happens a lot in my life so I I went in to meet with a teacher trying to get a shitty grade raised up because I was not trying to write the great American novel, but instead just not doing enough work in advance of uh, classes that I wasn't interested in. And I showed up to sort of ask her for a better grade and figure out what else I could do. And uh, we were talking and then we kind of finished and she paused and she was like, you know, there's this circus school that offers us a scholarship every year but nobody, I don't offer it to anybody because I don't think anybody would ever do it. Would you want to do that? And I was like, yeah. Like it just didn't, it was so bizarre. But so for free, I went and learned how to do European stilt walking and I fell off a trapeze a couple of times and then stopped doing that. And they taught us physical theater, which is really awkward and, and made, sort of reconfirmed how much I hate actors and that whole culture. And um <clears throat> I obviously did some clown. There wasn't any juggling. I'm sort of self-taught as a juggler. Um, but yeah, I mean, between that and then my mother made me go to the British American Dramatic Academy, and that seemed like a complete waste of time until I met Floyd King, who was this famous Shakespearean clown. And he was with the Washington Shakespeare Company. And um, he taught me, that's where I learned how to fall, is what I always say. And so um, between those two things, circus is like a really, I was going to go, actually Kate and I were going to go to the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Clown College because she's also a mime and a clown. And um, I'm not a mime. I mean, come on, guys. Let's get serious. Okay. Um, I've got a dick on my front. How old are you, by the way? I'm 18. That is very, very unnerving, but legal. So uh, I can use adult language. I think that... Um, you know, it, it it really was our dream for a little while to run away with the circus. Um, and then now we all saw how that went. Can't but let you, these animals be mistreated as he eats a fucking hamburger from a factory farm cow. But do you think where- It was where, tortured before killed. <laughs> fucking bullshit. That pisses me off so fucking much. Wait, are you it's a not a circus because some elephant got whipped. And then meanwhile, they just throw chick, they break their wings and throw chickens into a fucking grinder. Sorry that you had to come in at this point, but <laughs> it's getting bad about circus up here. So that's a bunch of fucking bullshit, all that stuff. But, you know, we, we didn't do that. And instead we actually are living the life that we dreamed of, which was I wanted to be a Manhattan stand-up comedian, uh, a New York comic. And she wanted to be uh, sort of an artist and in everything in New York City, and that's what we did. So well, I'm really happy think, to not be in Los Angeles, which do you I think, think is the, a garbage pail. We'll talk about that in a second, but do you think the circus, uh, the the learning all that helped you with, in terms of stage presence and for stand-up? 
Sure, yeah. I mean, any sort of performance definitely helps. But I feel like you in particular have a very, uh, your stage presence, you're not just up there telling premises and punchlines into a mic. Like, it's very physical, your, your stand-up. Right, well, that's because I kind of have worked harder than almost anybody. Do you ever do this because I sometimes do? Because of your hair, do you ever put like twigs or birds in there? And then when a conversation is get, getting boring, you're like, and then they all sort of fly out of no, your hair. No, but I should. That's a good technique. Okay. I mean, it's something. I got to try it. Or like a little fish bone. See if a cat comes after it. <laughs> so, um, so no, I mean, I think, you know, I've performed more than most human beings. What, what does it mean? Like when you first came to start doing stand-up, what were you doing? How did you first get on stage? I mean, when it? I was in high school, we used to improvise and we would have these block periods because I went to a very progressive and good public high school, East High School in Denver. It was mostly black and Latino. Dreams do come true. And uh, I just raised up my gold chain for those of you that are listening to the podcast <laughs> instead of watching it. Um, and, uh, we, uh, my drama teacher, who was this genius, she taught standup. So in high school, sophomore year, we would all have to do five minutes of standup. First, we would perform standup that somebody else had. And I think I did Seinfeld's something, which is hilarious. Cause now I'm, the comic strip is my home club and his book that I used is on stage there. So sometimes I'll just open it up and read his material. Like I learned to in high school. And then you had to do your own material. And that was the first time I performed stand-up and uh, it went really, really well. And then other days we would go and it was like, drama was like all these kind of nerdy theater dorks and all the gangsters that didn't really want to like work that hard so they could just show up and be super high for two hours. And so they, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Bloods, don't uh, don't like to improvise particularly. <laughs> you know they they're not big on short form improv as much yeah. as they are on threatening people with a gun, and um, and so nobody would really improvise. And so me and this other kid, Gavin Rember, would just get up and entertain the class for like two hours straight every other day, every week for years. Would you write material for that or just riff? No. And and that was the other thing is I'm an improviser by trade. So in college, I was in an improv and sketch and video troupe. So I was improvising all through college. And then college, the group was called Recess and they they rehearsed. It's so insane. And we didn't know otherwise, but they rehearsed 10 to midnight, Monday through Thursday, every week. And then you were expected to shoot videos and go to writing meetings on the weekends. It's the most intense amount of work that any college improv. We paid more attention to that group than we did our studies. Um, and, but that was it. I mean, we rehearsed on September 11th, like, like we didn't cancel practice because we still had to work to get ready for the show that we did like, every other week or whatever for hundreds and hundreds of kids. We also had a huge audience and a huge following there, especially when I first got there. I was the only person brought into the group my year. So I got a lot of opportunity. They didn't, it wasn't a big group. We were like the best. There were like four great groups in the United States while I was in school and we were one of them. And it was like the Skidmore sketches. They were really funny. Shout out to Saturn and Zegan, Boardwalk Empire, who knew? And um, and then Cornell, everybody loved Cornell. They were called the Schizophrenics. Take your time on that one. So I had a really funny thing where I, I made a, I tried to do this with Big J Okerson, where I'd do like a fake 
rivalry, but he wasn't into it. But we had a big fake rivalry with them, so we really hated them. And then uh, and then there was one other group, which of course escapes me right now. And then and, you even toured with uh, Second City, right? Yeah, I went and I... So I was doing improvisation in Chicago and I never really felt comfortable and still don't really with actors. Like if somebody's a good actor, it's hard for me to connect to them. Okay. I do pretty well with movie stars. I get along with movie stars probably because what they trade on is charisma, not skill. You know what I mean? Which charisma in my case is a skill. It's a learned trade. But What do you um, mean by that? Well, it's like... Um, like how do you learn charisma? Like a sociopath has to learn how to emulate human emotion, right? And so they spend a lot of time figuring out how to look sad or happy or feel bad for someone or pity an individual or something. And once they're able to do that, they can put out a fully formed persona that seems like they're a regular person. They're not a sociopath, right? So if you put that amount of energy into something like being a likable person, then you would eventually be able to be a likable person. The issue is, is that most people don't spend, I work so much. When I was in Chicago, I performed seven nights a week, even on holidays, every single week. If I wasn't doing a show, I was watching one. And on the weekends, I took classes in voiceover, on-camera acting, regular theater, just a a anything that you could do. And I worked a day job at fucking Radio Shack and a legal office and all these sorts of things. So most of my days were wake up at six, go to work, go home at like six, eat food standing up over a sink, then rush to the open mic to sign up, then go to a music open mic, then go see a show after that, and then try and party and be around the people that were in the scene and who I thought was funny and I could learn from, and then go home at like two or three in the morning and then wake up and do it again. But not taking two days off a week, doing that in perpetuity, just like I'm doing now with stand-up on the road. I tour every single weekend. I don't take any weekends off. So so you mentioned likability and charisma as as skills. Were these skills obviously when someone's when you're already a big name and people are paying to see you, they kind of come in liking you. But in the beginning, did you find that this was like the the hardest part? Like getting even was it compare this to the humor side of stand-up? Oh, the versus the likability versus oh, hey, look, I'm all delivery. All right. No writing, no material. Um, I you know, I think I I guess I sort of, you know, the mission statement behind everything that I do is that life is fundamentally tragic. And so comedy provides an ephemeral escapism from that tragedy that permeates everyday life. And the idea is that because that's altruistic in its intent, and that's how I arrived at absurdity, sort of, then, you know, I'm trying to make people happy. So through my entire life, you know, it's not hard to be likable when you want people to laugh and be happy. And when that's all you think about and that's something that you really devote yourself to and you work as hard as I've worked on it, the charisma sort of comes more quickly than the actual craft of joke writing, which I think I have learned, but I think that there are better stand-ups in terms of writing than me and, I, and they always will be. You know, I mean, there's some people that you just, you can't fucking believe their bits. You know what I mean? Like Jesselneck, it's like, I just... He just writes this shit and you're like, you can't fucking believe how funny that is and the economy of words. And that's just not what I do. But I also am not like, blah, 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 like that's not the whole thing up here. Otherwise you kind of get into Dane Cook land where 
unless you sort of approach, unless you begin to truly have some sort of meaning within the material, then uh, you know you're going to run out of gas. Yeah, like I've seen people you only want to see you run around so much. You know? I I've seen you tell jokes, for instance, about going to the doctor. So you you came in here once and you had a broken arm or something, a cast <laughs> on your arm. You told a joke about going to the doctor, and it was actually similar to a story about that you told. Uh, once before when you had your brain surgery. Uh -huh. um, but just there was no punchlines in the story, and yet people were laughing constantly because of the delivery and the pauses. Yeah. So what's what's happening there? Like, what are you, again, what's what's the skill that you're leaning into as opposed to the joke writing? Like, how do you kind of, I don't even really know how to ask this question because it's not standard premise punchline, but you did have a story prepared, the story of going to the doctor, having a cast, something unusual, unusual things happen. Like the doctor tells you something and then he walks out of the room and you're like left wondering what's gonna happen. And even just thinking about it, I'm laughing just because of the way you delivered it. Uh, I think that it's sort of, you know, it's storytelling and how you tell a story and relate something is its own skill. And that can be funny. I mean, it's that idea of like, if you can read the phone book and that Albert Brooks thing is so funny where he's like, they say a great comedian can make the phone book funny. And they just read from the phone book. It's ridiculous. But, you know, there is this idea of like, if you know how to just look at the world from an absurdist perspective, like my insignia is a jester's eye because everything can be seen comedically if you understand how to think and look at things that way. Um, but like, what's that? Tell me what that means. What's an absurdist perspective? What's a comedic well, perspective? It's like, you know, this is either a moment for us to really get down and dirty and discuss the particulars of comedy, or it's two guys with fucking ridiculous hair and microphones where the stands are way too long. We don't need any of this amount of stand at all. These are incredibly small tables. I don't even know where one would purchase a table this small unless they were building a large dollhouse. And we're performing for, I think... Four or five people, and I don't know who they are, why they're here. There's more cameras than people in here, and that makes it unnerving that there are people in here. And there's an 18-year-old who looks like she's 11. And I don't know why that's happening or who she is, but she clearly has laughed a couple of times because she's seen meticulously ridiculous. And and again and again, the wallpaper at Stand Up New York makes me feel like we're in The Shining. We will be killed, and blood will spill out of the elevators if there were ones, because this is not a handicap accessible club. Um, you can look at it that way, or we can sit here and take ourselves seriously. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting... And, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, 
you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring, so you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. So clearly part of your storytelling is finding the unusual and then... Yeah, you just have to, I mean, I don't know exactly, but you just, things are just funny. Like this is just so ridiculous, this whole thing. It's so ridiculous. What we're doing now, the fact that I woke up, the fact that Kate and I didn't talk for a while in the morning and then we watched Shit's Creek and she's on anesthesia, withdrawal. So, Why? What, did, what happened to her? She had a surgery. We had a lot of health problems in the family. That's just a general through line in life. But it's, you know, it, it's it's just all ridiculous. You have to kind of see it as ridiculous otherwise... You're Batman instead of the Joker, you know? And so so when you start, first started doing stand-up, did you think you had to play the game of premise punchline like everyone else, or did you go right into... I think one of my strengths is I actually don't take myself seriously. Hmm. So I really, for reals, do not take any of this seriously. And I think that has gotten me in a lot of trouble with with people and institutions and establishments that think that that take themselves seriously and that think that people should take all of this seriously. 
I think that it has afforded me a great amount of freedom and creative expression. Um, it's, it's afforded me a large following that appreciates that I don't, I honestly don't take things seriously. And I think that I never took it seriously that I was going to figure out how to do stand up. I just knew, you know, I learned this from my father. If you work harder than anyone around you, then you will be successful. And so I just figured you got to work and I'll figure it out as I work. So you were going up on it's stage. It's so insane to me that people don't understand that. I don't, and it's not necessarily their fault. I think a lot of people, more and more, Kate and I have this big thing right now. <laughs> One of the many philosophical arguments in our household is that she, she sometimes says, well, I wouldn't act like that if I was them. And I'm like, yeah, you would. And she's like, no, I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't be rude like that. And I go, yes, you would. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, if you were them, if you were actually that person with their background, their upbringing, the pros and cons that came with their life, the resources that were afforded to them and weren't, the obstacles and the challenges and the tragedy that they've faced, you would act exactly the way that they are acting. And she's like, no, I wouldn't. I would be more polite. And I'm like, no, you fucking wouldn't. And so uh, I understand that some people have a tough time working hard because it's easier not to work hard or figure out a reason why somebody else got something and you didn't or there's this and this thing and I just saw all that shit like I get it some people need to do that that's easier or better for them or that's just the way their life is going to go but it's insane to me that people don't understand that if you work harder than everybody else you will be I am a clear example of mediocre talent incredible work ethic success this is such an obvious uh, example of it. I am exemplary. So you you were going up on stage every day. You were then watching shows. Yeah, uh, and, wa and watching is a good point. Watching all the time, studying everything. I've seen every, people don't even know about the Thin Man series. And then somebody will talk to me and they'll be like, oh yeah, I saw a Marx Brothers film once. What the fuck are you talking about? And you're upset that you're not on a television show? What are you doing? You just at home jacking off to fucking Cosmo articles? Like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> What do you, I just, it's so insane to me. There's so many people that are like, I don't know. I just, you know, I feel like I haven't been doing well in auditions. Oh, well, are you taking an audition class? No. Why? Well, and then I don't need to listen to the rest. So, so you do take yourself seriously enough to map out what it takes to succeed. You're not Do just you hear how ridiculous <laughs> I sound trying to purport to have any knowledge of this thing? <laughs> no, this but is you, all luck. You don't sound This ridiculous. is completely luck. You're telling me you went up on stage every day, you watched everything you could, you went to acting classes in your spare time. You I don't even know what And a you don't think that's ridiculous is. What were because you doing I'm still going Mike? I'm still going to die. <laughs> And I don't know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. I might get to the end of my life and be like, why did I work so hard at comedy? I should have just been like, I don't know why I didn't work out and just hung out with my wife all the time. You know? So so, so what, what happened? Like you're, you're doing all this stuff. When did you get the call to, for whatever, Cloverfield was your first? When did I get the call? <laughs> I was working, I was working. And then Steven Spielberg <laughs> called me and was like, you did it, kid. You're in. Uh, no, it was, um, you know, it's a thousand things. It's like each time I do something, people are like, well, now that you're in Transformers 4, I mean, now you've really, now that you're in Silicon Valley, now you're, now that you did Deadpool, now you're really, now that you have an HBO switch, now you're, so it's, it isn't any one thing. 
But I would say that on the way to an audition for a pilot in Chicago, I was like on my way there to make a tape. And on the way there, I was like, I'm going to do this. And then tomorrow I'm going to come back and do another one. And I'm going to wear my underwear and I'm going to bring a big uh, like picture of books to put up behind me. And that was really a moment where I was like, no one gets any of these pilots from Chicago. Nobody's watching these fucking tapes. This is ridiculous. So why don't I just do what I want to do and what I think is funny? And then, of course, I booked that pilot. And then when I went out there, I auditioned for Cloverfield because I had a good meeting with the casting director, and then I got that movie. And so all of that came from... And also, by the way, the reason that I'm successful in film and television is because whenever I audition, I don't need the job. I don't need that part. I'm a stand-up comic. So I, I, I am never in a room thinking, okay, I better get this or I'm not going to be able to pay rent. What's going to happen? We just bought a new coat. You know, that's, that is not an issue. It, I always can go and do stand-up. I work for myself. You know, I'm a 1099 guy. And even being on Silicon Valley, you get a W-2. And so that felt like being an employee. But for all of those auditions, like, you know, I got Yogi Bear 3D because I went in there and I, I brought a, I wore, I wore a ranger outfit and I bought a ranger, a, a park ranger hat. And I came in and I go, do you mind if I wear the hat? And they were like, yeah. I was like, because it's, it was 1999 and it's, it's, I can return it, but only as an exchange. So I can't get the money back. So I really, is it okay if I wear the hat? And they were like, yeah, sure. You can wear the hat. And I was like, great. And I put the hat on and then there's always like a casting assistant who has to run the camera and it's such a thankless job, but they're like the most important person in the room. And so they were like adjusting. I was like, well, uh, can you just tell me what my frame is? Like, what kind of headroom do I have? Like, is the hat fully in the, the frame? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, I'm going to need actually just about like a foot, a foot and a quarter because I'm going to be doing a lot of hat work. You know, so I'll be moving the hat and putting, so if you can just give me enough room. So that was all because I thought that it was funny. I didn't care about being in Yogi Bear 3D. I didn't need that job. I just thought it that would be funny. That was the Oscar winner for you though. That yeah. was- Oh, hundred percent. That in the emoji movie was like <laughs> such a gift from God. I can't believe that. Cause Yogi Bear 3D, that reference was, it just was beginning to become stale instead of a deep cut reference. And so Emoji Movie was perfect. It's like there couldn't have been a better, you know, it wouldn't have been as funny to be in Alvin and the Chipmunks 3 chipwrecked well, what as was it is it? to be in the Emoji Movie. But then after I got home, I had heard from inside the studio that I was going to get the part for Yogi Bear 3D. And then I was like, oh my God, how funny would it be if I sent them a video of me doing the audition with a real bear? <laughs> and so I rented a real grizzly bear and I did the audition with a bear, and that's on the internet. And I sent it to them, and they sent it all around Warner Brothers, and it got, and they gave it to the head of the studio, Alan Horn, and he never laughs at anything, and he didn't laugh at this. But he looked at it, and he was like, yeah, give that guy the job. So that's how I got that job. So that's the thing is that everybody goes into these rooms, and they're like, I want to be a movie star. I want to be famous. I need this money. I got to get this job. I could... And I don't. I'm just like, what is the funniest? To me, an audition is another performance. And I love performing. So it's just an enjoyable experience. What about Silicon Valley? How did you audition for that? 
Well, I did a movie with uh, Mike Judge called Extract. And so we knew each other from that. And he's like Steven Spielberg. They strangely are like, <laughs> there's the guy tickles my funny bone. There's just something about me that Mike Judge and Steven Spielberg are like, <laughs> it's good stuff. I, I don't know. I don't get it. But, um, you know, he, so he liked me for this role. And I had said, he said, well, I am at, because he's an animator. So he thinks in terms of cartoons, is my opinion. He's also like, a genius who one time sat down at the piano and played something and Kate, who's very cultured, was like, my God, that was great. Was that, uh, I can't even pronounce it. Is that Handel or was that Bach or something? And he was like, no, um, you know, that was <laughs> it's just something I kind of did myself. So uh, <laughs> we were like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what kind of quiet genius is this guy? But um, he was like, I imagine somebody, I think the lead singer from fucking, Soundgarden was auditioning. In his mind, it was like this like tattooed grindcore, black haired, pierced guy. And I was doing the audition really well and he loved it, but he was like, you don't look like what's in my head. And I was like, well, then I can, this is acting, Mike. So I can become a different looking person, you know? And that was really interesting to him. So I dyed my hair black and shaved side of my head put on tattoos and piercings every morning for like four hours and did that movie. And then again in Silicon Valley, he was like, well, I thought it would be this like sort of short, fat guy with a ponytail and glasses and weird facial hair and like Penn Gillette or like look like that. And I'm like, well, Mike, again, I can become that. <laughs> and so I gained like 30 pounds or something and then had the weird facial hair and grew my hair super fucking long and it was horrible for my love life and my real life but it was very funny on the show and that was one where i actually had sworn off um acting in television so i had been on this show called the carpoolers which was really good and bruce mccullough created it and was directing and it was with jerry o'connell was really funny and jerry minor and fred goss who's a genius and Palace, I mean, it was just a great, great group of people. Um, and that got canceled because of the writer's strike. And then I was on a pilot called The Assistants, and that was with um, Lamorne, who's on uh, New Girl, and he's so funny. And, and that was a great pilot, and it was with, like, Heather Locklear, and it was so ridiculous, and that didn't get picked up. And then I did a pilot with um, John Stamos called um, Little Brothers. I'm in this movie called Already Brothers, something like that. I forget the name of it, but it was really funny. It was like me and I was his younger brother and I got out of jail and I was trying to reassimilate myself into the family. And that was fucking hysterical. And Sean Levy was the director and it was just so good. And then that didn't get picked up. And then I got put in a different show called The Goodwin Games because the head of Fox was like, he's funny, but that show sucks, so put him in this show that sucks. And I was like, ah. So then I was on that show, and that went like 13 episodes, and then that got canceled, and that was the guys who wrote How, How I Met Your Mother or whatever that show is. So they called me, and they were like, we wanted to call you and tell you that it got canceled, and I was just like, I'm not going to be on this side of the phone anymore. I need to be the guy who's like, I'm sorry, but we just got canceled. I can't be the guy that's like listening to that. 
So then I, by then I had produced Mashup on Comedy Central and I was producing Gore Burger and I was like, I'm only gonna produce television and I'll act in films because films don't get canceled, right? They get panned or they get loved, but either way they are. And also the reason I, the same reason I left Silicon Valley is television, unlike women and wine, does not get better with age, right? No one is ever like, my favorite episode of uh, Breaking Bad was in season seven. The eighth episode, nobody ever, it never happened. So after about, that's why there's that jump the shark expression. But I said, you know, I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna act in television anymore. It's not interesting to me because I never really wanted to be an actor. I just want to be a comedian. And then of course they called and they were like, Mike Judge is doing the show. He wants your audition. Altshuler and Krinsky were the creators. And I love John Altshuler. I love those guys a lot. So Altshuler called me and he's like, uh, you know, and, and they were like, we want you to audition for Big Head. And I was like, okay. And I found out it was Thomas Middleditch who I'd done, that would then do Search Party with. And I used to do a two-man show with him for years and years and years in Chicago. He's really funny. He might be the funniest improviser alive. And he, and and what John Altshuler said is he's like, the show's not about Big Head and Richard. I'm sorry, I've done a lot now. I've forgotten the names of the show that I was on. So um, it it's about Ehrlich and Richard. And the reason that I didn't understand was because the show is about Google and Apple and it, it's about those companies. And in those companies, there are always two personality types. One is Richard and one is Ehrlich. And uh, so I went in and they were like, you have to audition for this because I wasn't auditioning for stuff. And I was like, okay, because I don't care about it. They're like, they might want you to read. And I'm like, okay, fine. It's like, uh, I don't read scripts before table reads. Like there was something on the internet because the internet is terrible. And they were like, well, you know, he, um, he, he sometimes he would show up and he hadn't read the script the night before. Yeah, why would I? Then when I read it out loud in front of very important people that are deciding on notes and whether or not the episode and all this stuff, I'm not going to laugh genuinely because it's not a surprise to me. And I'm good at a cold read. So, you know, I always read. So I went in and I tested with Middleditch and because he and I have such good chemistry, we booked those two parts. And then that was what other people would call a game changer and what I call more work. Well, it, it seems like uh, they let you improv. I'm just guessing, but they let you improv mm -hmm. a lot in the show? Because immense amount. And by that time, by that time in Hollywood, and I think now, if you hire me, you know that I'm probably not going to do exactly what's on the script. So I'm always improvising. Because in a lot Deadpool of, also, it feels like. Yeah, it's a lot of riffing, yeah. yeah. But you know, those writers are fucking amazing. And Ryan Reynolds is really, really smart and really, really funny. And... um you know, so it's, some of it's riffing, some of it's just brilliant written stuff. But yeah, a lot of the jokes that people quote in my life are almost always things that I've riffed. Like there's no such thing as an ugly candle. That was like a riff. The avocado thing was a riff. Um, the one thing that people loved that I didn't riff and was just great writing by the Silicon Valley team was you just brought piss to a shit fight. And that's incredibly funny and I could not have come up with that. And I did some alternate riffs and they weren't as funny. Huh. But that's another thing about me is when I riff stuff, unlike everybody got really upset too that I had an honest and authentic exit interview about Silicon Valley with The Hollywood Reporter, but it was also at the same time that I was realizing that the 
soon-to-be president kept breaking the news cycle just by being authentic. So people were like more interested in that than being polite. Anyway, that was a whole social experiment <clears throat> that ended up being what it was. But so I kind of broke the internet with that exit interview. But in well, it, I well, sort well, of what was the exit interview? I actually, don't it was know. just, and that's because nobody has any sort of memory for any of this stuff, which is also hilarious. But um, it's you know, I just openly was like, I don't get along with this guy Alec Berg because I just don't like him. He's one of those Harvard kids who thinks they're so fucking smart and they're not. And so you know, you have to like deal with certain personalities in television and he is like the worst version of that. He is negative. He feels like a black hole of energy. I've worked with Michael Bay, who's delightful, but insane, you know? And, but he would come in and the problem with him is that it doesn't matter what's funniest. He wants his line to be on television. And that's not how great things are made. Great things are made when I show up to Transformers 4 and Michael Bay and are screaming at each other and I come up with 13 lines and they're all funny. And then he says, no, 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 this just isn't, let's make it up. Let's come over here and let's make it up. And I'm like, what? And he's like, let's just forget the scene. Let's just make up what this is supposed to be. And I'm like, this is going to be seen by like hundreds of millions of people and you just want us to make it up on the spot? That's coming from an improviser. But I was like, this movie is so big. And Bay was like, what if it's like a, what if he wants to go on like a surf, like I was thinking about this last night, like a surf and safari. And I was like, oh, that's really funny. And then he's like, where would be the funniest place to go? And I like pitched him 10 things and then he came up with the funniest place and that's what's in the movie and it was fucking brilliant. So that was a moment where I was very funny, but Michael Bay was funnier. And so we did Michael Bay's line. So, and that is a fucking no brainer for me, but there are a lot of people like Alec Berg who are like, no, it's about... So that's that's a that's the issue. That's when your ego is at the forefront. Whereas because everything that I do is sort of altruistic in its intent, then I never get in my own way. That's another thing. So was there was there it, despite that though the whole show Silicon Valley is comedians. Like everybody in the cast was a comedian, right? Mm -hmm. I mean you have yeah. I mean Martin Starr would consider himself an actor, not a comedian, but he's a fucking comedian. And I mean his start was in all the Judd Apatow sitcoms from like Freaks and Geeks when he was a little kid. And yeah, 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 yeah. He's he's a yes, yeah. He's he's great. Then you have Kamel. You have I thought you said Star, and I thought you were like the Star, and that was Thomas Middleditt. And so yeah, yeah. but. Um, Jimmy Yang, yeah, yeah. Jimmy o. Yang's really, really funny. He was like the coolest thing about that show for me because I love him, and he and I are really good friends now. But yeah, I mean, everybody was a comedian. Mike Judge is obviously one of the great comedic minds of all time. Maybe. And then Alec Burks worked with, you know, Curb. Everybody's a comedian. Seinfeld. Yeah, and I kind of the more I watch Seinfeld do interviews, the more I'm like, I don't know if I would like that guy. Like he did this interview with Ellen and I'm kind of friends with Ellen and she's like so funny and so cool and so smart and everybody that works for her is so awesome. And I could tell that her episode of Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee, I was like, she's not, from my perspective, I was like, she's not really having it from him. Like there's an arrogance about him that just doesn't work with some people. And Alec is kind of like that. He just has this arrogance where I'm like, where is this coming from? What's happening? Like, you're so successful. You're so rich. You have a wife. You're, you're doing so well. What is going on? Why are you upset? And, you know, I think it's a weird thing where like, I don't know, some people just maybe I guess can't be happy or something or I don't, I don't, where they're like, 
status anxiety just is so overwhelmingly, it just takes over most of their personality or something. That's yeah, why well, I don't like living in Los Angeles is status anxiety is actually kind of forced upon you. So how do you, how do you get, that's like an addiction almost. Like how do you get over status anxiety? You move the fuck out of Los Angeles. <laughs> but even in New York, in New York, there's status anxiety. Yeah, but it's all hierarchy. segmented. <laughs> so you can sort of stay, you know, everybody. The status anxiety in New York is very funny because everybody makes fun of everybody else. So it's like, I think it's stupid that I'm on the Upper West Side right now. And as I go back downtown, I'll make fun of things in my mind and be like, oh, Zabars, I hope they have enough room for their coffee cake. <laughs> And then in the Upper West Side, they'll be like, oh, you're going to the village. Good luck getting past one block without somebody being like, ah, my dick, you know, or whatever it is. And then, you know, we'll make fun of people in Brooklyn. And then people in Brooklyn are like, oh, bougie are the people in Manhattan. But the thing about New York is that everybody is trying to make rent. Everybody. And so there is this respect in New York, which is if you couldn't make rent, you would not be here. And even... And actually, I think in New York, in some ways, we feel sorry for the super rich trust fund kids because they're not really in New York. They don't really know. They're not actually living in New York City. They're like geographically here, but they are not in the mindset of when they hurry on to get on the subway, it's not the same thing as when you and I hurry to be like, I got to get to this place so I can do this, because you have to make rent. So there's this respect in New York for everybody. So I don't. I, I would never disrespect someone from Brooklyn, but I would make fun of them. And I don't think anyone from Brooklyn is disrespecting me, but they can definitely make fun of me because all of us are sort of still trying to make it in the large apple, the city that rarely sleeps. Let's go see a music play on Broad Street. Everything happens in a New York two and a half hours. Um, so, it, yeah, so I think Los Angeles, though, you don't have to really be like New York. I always say will crush a man in two weeks. They'll crush a man's spirit in two weeks. Los Angeles will let him slowly drift off into the ether over 10 years. And in Los Angeles, you get to a point where you're like, wait a second, is it January? Wait, have I been, have I been surfing for eight years? Like, and then your life is over. It's terrible. But in New York, it's like, if you can't hack it, you're gone. So do you work just as hard now as the beginning, like at standup, at comedy? Yes, but I work differently. What, what's your daily routine, if, if there is one? There isn't a daily routine, but I, I'm only in New York three days out of the week, which is horrible. Um, but tonight I have, so, you know, I'll get up, I try and do things with K8 and, you know, hang out with her and be around her. We have a really cool house, so we, I like to hang out there. We have two cats, and so I tolerate that. But like tonight I have, you know, I came and I ran. I did this after I dropped Kate off at acupuncture. Then as soon as this is done, I'll go home to get ready to do a set at the Village Lantern, then Frantic at Carol and Esther's, then Danger Fields, then the Comic Strip, then the Village Lantern, then Greenwich Village Comedy Club, then New York Comedy Club. Should be at like so that's six one, different two, places. Three, four, five, six, seven sets on a weekday. And so, yeah, I guess you could say I work harder than everybody else. So, okay, so now. But I mean, it's, you know, it, what's so interesting. And then also some people will be like, I, I mean, why do you still do stand-up? And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know? Or they'll be like, it's that same thing where they're like, oh, you still audition? Yes. What, what do you mean? 
Like, and why would you want to stop working? Like, these it's the fun work. Like, I used to work at fucking Radio Shack. That was horrible. So let, let's let's talk about your process. Like tonight, you're. Yeah, I made that clear. <laughs> I was selling Zip Zap. Sorry, Zip Zap miniature radio controlled cars for a living for a while. <laughs> She's going. Who knew? I'm 18. The world is my oyster. It is not, and divorce is likely in your future. Go ahead. <laughs> so you're doing these seven sets tonight. What? What? How do you prepare for them? How do you think about them? Like you're not going to just go up there and riff. You're working on this material with this. Oh no, I think time it depends. And- no, I think it depends. At the Village Lantern. Sometimes I'll just riff because that can be a difficult audience. At the comic strip, I like no longer have to absolutely kill. So I'll try a couple of one-liners that are new and I'm working on age stuff right now, which actually that was a joke from the age chunk that I'm working on. Like I have this joke, oh, to be 22 again. And so I'll work on that a little bit. And then at Dangerfield, well, I'll what, probably what's just that? tell stories because that's kind of what I've decided to do there. Okay, let's talk about the age stuff for a second. Do you sit down and write? Are you thinking of things? Like, what is? how do you work through material? No, I mean, I think of theme. You sort of think of themes or something's funny, and then I write it down. I usually have a notebook. And I work stuff out on stage. I think it was Carlin that said that, where he was like, I just go on stage. Like, I have an idea, and, it, and I don't worry about writing it because it's going to work itself out on stage. That's another reason that I need to perform so much. Um, but yeah, it's usually an idea Then I do it on stage. And then once I've done it 20 or 30 times, I've gotten the wording right. And then you like tour it for a year. And I remember like three shows ago or something and I record every single show and I rarely listen to him. But I remember I did a show a couple of shows ago and I, I did this new way of doing this joke. And I was like, what the fuck have I been doing for three years? Like this was the way that I should have been delivering this joke. And so all that just takes patience and hard work, you know? But then like, you know, Dangerfields, I went there in my first set. That's the reason I became, that's the reason I want to become a New York comic because I saw Artie Foucault and I saw Godfrey in another, um, I've always aspired to be a great black New York stand-up comic. Uh, I saw those guys, but no, 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 they actually, they, those guys work fucking crazy hard. So I saw Artie at Dangerfields and he was like, he showed up and he was like stretching and drinking water and he was like can i go up next i got a spot at the cellar and i realized oh my god he just came from a show he's about to do a show and then he's going to go do another show and i was like that's exactly the life that i want to have and um and and so i went to Dangerfields and i told that story and it was really fun and there were like nine people there because i only perform monday through wednesday in new york and um and so i uh, I think that at Dangerfields, I will always just tell stories from like my life, from the day, from whatever, you know? And that's sort of an homage to Rodney Dangerfield because he never really got any respect. But he was, uh, his all his jokes were written. He would never riff. Yeah, he even would go up and read them without any delivery and see if they worked. And if they didn't, he would throw them away. But, you know, that's a different thing. And then if you look at it, what do we remember him about? We remember his persona. Yeah. Even if you remember the joke, like... You know, hey, uh, my wife's so fat when she backs up, she makes a beeping noise. (laughs) You know, uh, you're still sort of laughing at the way that he said it. But Woody Allen figured that out. He was he thought he thought he thought it was just the material. It didn't matter. He could just do the material, and he realized that it would never go anywhere until he created a persona. He like traded on his persona. But I feel for you, it's it's so much persona when you're like when you're telling these stories, like your everyday 
joke. You know, you ran into someone who was drunk yeah. who says the word every day. Every you just day. make fun of that word. Drinking champagne every day. And then, every you kinda, day. and then you kind of- Every day, really? Every day? Champagne every day? That's a bad, you must have a lot of stomach aches and headaches and diarrhea. I don't like talking about it, but champagne isn't good for the system. So again, though, it's a, it's part of the physicality of the joke as well. Like the way you say it, the way you 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 you, you pause through the through the story. Yeah, I mean that seems like where most of the work is that you're doing, as opposed to like sitting at home in front of a computer writing down pun, premise punchline. Like you try to find the ridiculous in something. You're like, yeah, That's but I've yes, but then I've read more Nietzsche than anyone has. Okay, so so go from that to comedy. Like how do you I still this is so what we you started just, with. You you just read that stuff and you know, I mean it's just fun for me to read philosophy. I think it's interesting. And so I read that stuff and I read evolutionary psychology and sort of sociological stuff. And then I kind of, you know, then you slowly like I got these cats and I was like, Ugh, I guess I'll learn about cats. So then I read all this stuff about cats and it was so fucking hilarious. And then I realized that I could turn that into stand-up. And then I realized that that was an example of how morality is relative because we've enslaved this other species to be our companion. And yet everybody is against slavery, right? Just like how we banned the fucking circus. And I just had a hamburger that was grass-fed, but you better believe they tortured that cow before they killed it and I ate it. And so, you know, those things sort of come together, but with the Nietzsche and stuff, it's like, I just, I realized pretty early on, I realized that he, and he says this himself, but basically he knew that what he was writing about wouldn't be understood for 200 years. And we're about 150 years into that period of time that he thought it would take. And so it is starting to become relevant what he's talking about. And he actually is becoming more, um, well read, but he's sort of like Jesus Christ, you know, except a, a, a except funnier and a better writer. And because uh, I don't think Jesus even wrote anything. That's like Socrates. It's like they just didn't bother to write it down, so you just leave it to Plato and some apostle Paul or something. And you don't think it's going to be taken and used for evil. Um, not that the Nazis didn't appropriate Nietzsche stuff for a little while there. That's his fucking sister's fault, Elizabeth. We don't want to talk about her. And, um, you know, but I, so you, I read enough of his stuff and then I realized like the, the best thing that I could do right now is try and explain to people because nihilism is a form of the human comedy can only be seen as such unless you're a nihilist. You can't, that's what absurdism is like Ionesco is the main source for absurdist theory that I have. And he really was like, this is all a joke. This is just absolutely ridiculous and absurd. And until we really recognize that and accept it, then you're kind of living this masquerade. And there's just not a lot of comedians doing that type of material except for Norm MacDonald. Norm MacDonald is TJ Miller done right. And so, so Norm obviously is an influence who are other influences. Louis C.K. started off just yeah. being absurd. Well, that, I, I watched him and I was like, Louis seemed to, he's really interesting. He kind of did absurdism and then he had to, I guess somebody, I don't know, I, I don't know him that well, but I guess somebody said like, you're so funny when you bitch about your family at home, like off stage, why don't you talk about that on stage? 
And then somebody pointed out that Steve Martin kind of quit doing stand-up, and part of it was I think he never wanted to talk about himself. And absurdism only takes you so far. So I have done something similar, which is like I do this absurdist stuff, and then even The Onion is like, why doesn't T.J. Miller just be a stand-up instead of trying to do this burp farming stuff? And I'm like, I don't know, man. But I, you know, I think that absurdism is just a little too obtuse for the general public. But and also, you're kind of what you like about stand-up is that it's real, and so it's so rare that people are able to like speak freely and be real. And so you'd rather hear about that than how I came up with. Uh, Burt Butterfly, the Burt Butterfly P.I. You guys know what a Burt Butterfly is? It's when you... Uh, it goes <laughs> into the sky. And and so Burt Bert is a private investigator who figures out if there are men that are doing Burt Butterflies and selling them and keeping the profits a secret from their wife. Okay, so uh, all right. So what's next for you? What are you? You're working on stand up. I'm gonna do another podcast right after this. <laughs> so I go and I do a podcast now about this podcast. All right, but it's not a recap. It's sort of every time I do a podcast, I do a podcast afterwards about podcasts. It's smart. So I'll sort of say what I learned, how I thought it went. Um, I'll lament that I talk too much. I'll sort of muse on the idea that I tried to ask you questions, but you sort of artfully told me no this is not a podcast about me i'll mention how clever i thought the riff about your hair and hiding things in it was but <laughs> talk about how uncomfortable it was that the people in the audience weren't smart enough to understand the majority of what i was talking about and how when i mentioned that at the end of this podcast i should have kept that for the podcast after this because then it wouldn't have insulted the people unless they listened to the podcast about this podcast <laughs> and then i think i'll have a hamburger and listen to the screams of the beast cow that was killed to do it. Watch old videos of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus back when life used to be fun and simple and right. And uh, and then I'll go do seven sets. And what about after the seven sets? Like just in general. Then where, I hope I wake up tomorrow or where, not. Because death is the longest, greatest sleep without nightmares where you don't have to work tomorrow. But where are you, where do you see yourself? And that would have been a perfect ending to the podcast. I know, I had to keep going. But, he, but there's something, <laughs> I'm not it's the it same end. thing as you've seen. He has this like need to be like, but what is the charisma thing? What does it mean? What do you mean? Like, how do you, what is that? Like, capture it, tell me, I want to manufacture it. And it's like, buddy, sometimes you just have to let it be what it is, which is pretty funny. Everybody, TJ Miller. Thank you! <laughs> That wasn't halfway bad, was it? All right, now let's do a podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. Thank you, sir. That was great. Yeah, it's great. Excellent. Thank, Thank you so much.